Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our Warren. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren, and on the other side of the country, we have Mr. Uh, Dave Martino, Dave North Martino. Hey, Al. <laughs> <laughs> I got the full name. Yeah, yeah. I see the full name treatment. Wow. You're doing good. I mean, jeez, uh, <laughs> at least you're not Rose anymore. I know. Oh, boy. <laughs> In the middle of the fires. It. So the fires are cooling down finally. We got rain today. It's a beautiful day. Oh, it's great. Cloudy, cloudy and rainy and just all of that stuff. Oh. <laughs> but that's okay. I, I don't mind. After all the heat and the, and the fires, uh, a lot of smoke going on out there, too, because the, the water, uh, the rain actually causes a lot of smoke. Smoke, you know, yeah. That, you, know, you know, I guess it's good for the fires, but at the same time, it causes a ton of smoke. Wow. So, you know, but that's okay. Now, speaking of smoke and fire, <laughs> we have got an author, a returning author, that is, and he's got a new book coming out, and it's called A Fire in the Night. Just works perfect for me. Uh, Christopher Swan, <laughs> thank you for being here. Absolutely, Al. Thanks so much for having me. Always. It's always good fun talking to you. Uh, how's everything going for you? It's been a, it's been about a year now. I think we we talked to you last time. You had a book coming out, so you're busy. Um, I mean, you you're a warden at a prison, and <laughs> or I mean, a school teacher. I'm a high school English teacher in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my. Um, so that's that's kind of good. And uh, so you um, so it, it, how do you find writing? I, I mean, because I, I mean this as a teacher, because you're you're you've got your work to do with school, and you've got all that stuff going on. That that takes a lot in itself, and then to concentrate enough to write a book like this, it it does. It's it's a uh, it's a challenge, but I'm lucky where I work. I've worked there long enough to where um, I've got you know you teach long enough, and you've got okay, I've got my lesson plans, and I've got my my sort of my bag of tricks, and I have my shtick that I do for this unit and that sort of thing. And I work at an independent school in Atlanta, so we don't have lots of extra duties outside of teaching. Um, and so I'm able to carve out. I pretty much try to keep work at work and come home and home is family and writing. And in the summer, uh, that's really when I kind of get a running start and try to get as much down on paper or I guess technically on my laptop as I can. And then I can work, work a little bit more slowly during the school year, but I've got it. I've got a really good start going. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite a process, but you know, when you're writing a story like this, like th this one's um, you, you, what do you call this? This is kind of a mystery thriller, I guess. Yeah. I've got, I'm going to 
Lee Goldberg, who I know you've had in your show, uh, yeah. who I met at a conference a few years ago, is hysterical, uh, real funny stories, great, a great writer, uh, New York Times bestseller. Uh, he blurred this and called it literary fiction, a spy novel, and a relentless thriller all in one. I'm like, yep, that's good. Let's just make that really, really big and print that everywhere. I always like trying to write stories that are I can write them as well as I can, have them filled with characters who uh, aren't just the stereotypes but seem like you know, people. And I always like having something happen, usually something thrilling. It doesn't always have to involve a gun, but uh, well, that works. I mean, <laughs> well, Lee Goldberg, what a small world, too, you know, because he, um, well, last time he was on the show, he, he was wearing his dress and drinking a Diet Pepsi. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, I, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But no, no, actually, it's funny because this uncle, Burl Bear, who's a true crime writer, worked in Seattle at a station when I worked there across the way from him. So it's just, it's kind of weird how it's. A small world like that, little connections, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now he was. I met him at a conference in Alabama a couple of years ago, and I was still, I was still sort of new. Like I'm meeting other authors, and he was the he was the guest of honor, and all the other authors there. We were just sitting around his table, uh, like afterwards. He was just telling us stories about what it was like to work in Hollywood and write for TV shows, um, and just hysterical things that happened to him and that he saw happen and people arguing about things in shows that he was writing. And it was, it was a lot of fun. So now your characters, it's, it's really interesting. So Nick Anthony, who is Nick Anthony? Nick Anthony is a retired history professor who just wants to be left alone. He's uh, mourning the death of his wife and timely death from cancer. Uh, and he's in there mountain cabin in western North Carolina where they had planned to retire uh, and he had just sort of taken early retirement uh, to go there and then uh, she died and he took care of her uh, to the end of her life in that cabin and now he's sitting there and isolated just wants to be left alone to grieve and uh, of course this being a book, that's not going to be allowed to happen for very long. No, it would be boring then. <laughs> his his uh, 16-year-old niece, Annalise, whose existence he didn't even know about because he's been really estranged from his brother, uh, shows up on his porch. Um, her parents have died in a house fire. Uh, she claims that the house fire was set by men. She doesn't know who they are, uh, and she's afraid they're chasing her. Turns out she's right, and they think, well, you know, we got a 16-year-old girl, and we got this retired history professor. This isn't going to be too hard. But Nick is not just a retired history professor, and he's got a few tricks hidden up his sleeve. It goes from there. So, so this is a comedy. No, just <laughs> <laughs> this is it's a, a lighthearted love story about. Yeah, yeah, yeah it sounds like <laughs> it. How do you put together someone like Nick Anthony? See, I I do all nonfiction too, right? So I don't get into this creation sort of thing that you guys do. Um, so how does how do you develop that character so that he seems like a, he's a real person? So I've had, I've always liked stories where you've got. Uh, a character that you think is one thing, you're led to think they're one thing, and there's more to them. Um, you realize they've got another side to them or a past. Something like A History of Violence uh, with Viggo Mortensen. He's, he's like a short-order cook kind of guy in a small town in the Midwest, and these mafia types from out of town drive up and they start calling him a different name than he is and he's like you've got me you've got me confused with somebody else uh no they don't he's just lying about who he was and this whole he's he's got a wife and kids and they have no idea about this previous life of his um i've always liked stories with a character like that and my book is not like a history of violence but 
coming up with a character who's got, who legitimately is a history professor, and uh, he has a wife who has died, but he still remembers her, and he actually still talks to her in his memory, uh, or as a ghost, if you want to look at it that way, more memory. And I like I like that idea, and you know, somebody who's in pain. And then his niece, uh, 16-year-old niece, Annalise, I had a whole lot of fun writing her because I teach high school and I've worked with teenagers forever. And I have two teenage sons, but it was a lot of fun writing her voice, and especially she doesn't know her uncles at all. Her dad just said, go to your uncle. And so having them kind of try to figure each other out uh, that, and, and talk to each other, that was a whole lot of fun because they don't, they don't exactly hit it off uh, at the beginning, and they're meeting under kind of weird circumstances. So I like I like having characters that kind of dynamic where they're going to um, there's going to be tension, or they're going to bicker, uh, and they're going to have to learn how to trust one another. Uh, and then you throw in a you know bunch of guys with guns who have some sort of mission that they're trying to uh, get the girl, and she knows her dad knows something they're trying to get from her, and and Nick and Annalise have to figure out what the heck they're talking about and figure out how to beat them, stop them, and not get shot in the process. When you're running characters like uh, Nick and Annalise, um, do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear the characters' voices in your head? Um, are you are you um, writing more from images and symbols that you're kind of translating onto the page? How does that work for you? Every book's different. This one... Um, like a lot of the my previous two books have been or first person narrator, and so I had the the characters and the voice uh, for both of them because uh, you know they're the ones you know telling me the story basically telling you. With this one, it was more I wanted a scenario where I had these three characters. I've got Nick, I've got his niece Annalise, and then there's this third guy Cole who's. Uh, Military contractor, which is the apparently the preferred modern term for mercenary, uh, who is who's been hired to retrieve some information from Annalise's family, and so he's following her. And I jump. I, I wanted to play with all three of them, and I like playing with having the villain. Hopefully, he's not just some sort of cardboard cutout bad guy. You know, like the villains in James Bond movies. They all they're all kind of weirdly eccentric, and they want to rule the world. Like nobody wants to really, who wants to rule the world. Who wants to do that? You know how much of a pain that would be. People might want to do whatever they want to do and not be bothered uh, and have power. But um, I wanted to come up with somebody who you know, he's got a job. He's got to go find the stuff, and if that means he has to kill this kid and her uncle, then so be it. Um, I'm not a fan of that, but. I wanted to make you have a character who's like, okay, he's not a psychopath. He's like, this is just my job. This is what I do. And I wanted to play with that idea. Once once I got those three characters kind of set, um, Nick and Annalise's voices came more easily because they interacted with each other and they kind of, they bicker and they try to sort of fumblingly tell each other their stories. Um Whereas Cole is working with his his men who work with him, and they're pursuing this girl and trying to find her. Um, had to work a little harder with his voice, but I, I think I got it, and I think he's he's going to be an interesting villain for people to read. When you hear these voices, they don't tell you to do anything too weird, like you know, not not terribly. Things. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not the only crazy one. <laughs> I, I have had characters, I have had characters, I said this in my last book, Never Turn Back, and I may have talked about it when I talked with you last. There's a, in that book, the main character is Ethan, and his sister Susie is kind of damaged goods. And one of the first scenes I wrote with her is she's, a, their kids sitting at the kitchen table, and they're eating dinner. And she's supposed to be eating peas. And in my head, Susie crossed her arms and said, no. And mm. I was like, what What are you talking? Yes. She's like, no. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the author. I made you. You're, you're doing this. <laughs> so I wrote, yep. I, she ate the pea, and the scene died. Like, it just, I could not. It was like a door closed, and I didn't. I'm like, what are words? Like, I couldn't. 
it, it didn't work. So I said, fine, you don't eat the peas. And it, it was almost like she said, thank you. And then the scene worked. And I didn't hallucinate mm. her. She wasn't sitting on the couch next to me. I didn't visualize her, and I, wasn't, I didn't have a literal voice in my head. But sometimes that happens. Yeah. Um, and that especially you. happened to that book. With this book, uh, a little less so, but I did, you know, I did something. When you have some of these characters where they're, they're going through their thoughts, especially Annalise, who's, you know, she's, she's got her thoughts are going a mile a minute. They're racing through her head. And every once in a while, it's kind of ironically funny. That, yeah, I can. I heard that. And there are times I might even say things aloud, like, is that something, if, if they're speaking, is that something someone would actually say? Could you say that? Would you say that? Um, but, yeah, normally my characters aren't telling me to do anything too dangerous. <laughs> just Maybe they're just disagreeing with me every once in a while. Does the school let you drink and do drugs in order for you to write these? That's just the whole... That that's the whole. Well, I mean, we are an Episcopal school. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, what else is there? <laughs> but we no, we. Um, it's funny, I've, I've said. I, mean, I I grew up with the, uh, you know, the ghost of Hemingway, you know, over my shoulder, like a lot of. I'm a Gen X kid, so that mm. kind of. Oh, he was like a great writer, you know, from generate couple generations before and. Um, yeah, there's this there's this idea that you know the great artists, uh, whether it's in America or any other country, and whether they're writers or painters or what have you, that they're all you know, they're all alcoholics, so they're all uh, you know, mentally unstable. And I think great I think great art can come from suffering, but I don't think that's required. And uh, all I know is that if I have more than two glasses of wine when I'm trying to write a book, uh, then I'm either not sure what I'm writing or I'm convinced that I'm Flaubert and this is amazing. Until the next morning when I look at what I was put on paper, I'm like, yeah, it's a delete file. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't have Annalise doing those sort of things with peace. No. Uh, I, I, so, yeah, I'm not... Uh, yeah, I like a, I like a glass of wine, but yeah, I'm not um, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not Dylan I'm not Dylan Thomas or. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, but but uh, doesn't that make you second guess things? Like you know, you're talking to a uh, a nonfiction writer here, so mm -hmm. I, wouldn't that like I question source and think about things quite sure. a bit because I'm I'm supposed to be giving people the truth. So does it ever make you second guess sometimes, like when you're giving these stories and you're putting them down? Um, do you ever doubt yourself? Oh, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I think if you're going to be a writer, you've got to have a healthy ego to some extent because, one, you think that you can write a book, <laughs> first off. <laughs> like, you just, like you can literally write like a manuscript-length work. Okay, once you do that, you think it's going to be good enough that someone is going to want to publish it. And then you think somebody's going to want to buy it. <laughs> All that, yeah. if you're like, okay, yeah, I'm willing to do that, um, sure. But then yeah, at the same time, you're writing, is that, is that what it would look like? Is that, you know, I do every once in a while, if I'm writing a scene, especially about something that I don't know very well firsthand. Um, you know, you always think, you know, is there going to be some, is there going to be some reader that's like, actually, I'm a, you know, I'm a economist and I know all about, you know, Bitcoin, let's say, and you got this all wrong. Or, or that's not what the Bacaw Valley in, looks like in Lebanon or whatever. So that's where the Internet's fantastic. Uh, that's where I've been able to like, how would that work? Um, so if you're talking about, you know, am I getting this right about a certain action or activity or a place, uh, research is great because it's so easy to, I mean, Google Earth, Google Maps, they're fantastic. You can get not only a map of what a place looks like, but you can see several pictures, um, or video. And if you're talking about, you know, do I doubt my ability to 
get a character to do something that actually makes sense? Yeah, it's a leap of faith. I can portray what really happened. I could talk about what people really said to each other and what they did and sure. what the evidence shows. But you, you sort of create all that. So um, if you're not out there doing it, if you're not out pretending to be Nick Anthony and you're out doing all this stuff and killing people and, you know, whatever else, um, if you're not doing that, um, you have to kind of, it all comes from your creative process. So it's like, you know, you could take a, a song that you like, and if you really looked or listened to the, to the lyrics or some of them, you realize they sound kind of silly sometimes. Mm -hmm. If you were just to write that down, you'd go, well, that's stupid. Nobody's going to like that. That's sort of what I mean by doubt, because you're, because whether they like what the people in my book say or not, it doesn't matter because this is what they said. And right. They, you're, you're, you're writing about things that exist in objective reality. Right. Whereas I'm, I'm writing about things that I'm hoping that you believe could possibly happen. That's what most fiction writers do. Even if, even if you're writing, say, fantasy or science fiction, uh, and you've got it set, you've got stories set in some sort of fabulistic world that does not exist, uh, it's sort of a game of, well, what if it could, it, what if, what if this could happen? And that's what, that's what all fiction writers are doing. We're making up stuff in our heads and hoping that it transfers to a reader who's like, oh, okay, I want to follow these people around. Because we, it's a game you play with, uh, with readers. It's a, it's a contract. Everybody who picks up a, a novel understands that this didn't really happen, and they're going to suspend their disbelief. Um, and then if it doesn't, that, there's a, that's a clumsy phrase uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge used, was the willing suspension of disbelief. That, uh, that's what readers do. Is they, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to pretend like this could be real, and then I'm going to get into it. But if they're constantly reminded because the writing is poor or the writer's not doing a very good job of selling it, if you're constantly kind of pulled out of the story and instead you're like looking at a book, and, you, and you're like, I don't, that couldn't happen, then, then it's not very successful. I taught, when I, I taught for freshmen when I first started teaching years ago. I'm in my 26th year at Holy Innocence. And uh, we, they were reading um, The Fellowship of the Ring. It was one of the books that was on, uh, on their list. And a third of my students really liked it, and a third of them were like, it's a book, you know, whatever. And a third of them just did not like it. Well, I was really young. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I was personally, like, disappointed. And why do you not like it? And one of them said, well, you know, I mean, Mr. Swan, it's just not, it's just not really realistic. I mean, it, there's no such thing as dwarves. <laughs> and I said, well, number one, you're, you're wrong, although that's an offensive term, and I believe it's little people. Uh, and and B, it's a fantasy. Like it's made. Did, did your parents not read Peter Pan to you, or did they? And you're like, there's no such thing as fairy dust. Like that doesn't make any kind of sense. Why is Peter Pan not get old? I mean, is that? I, I I almost felt like that with these. I'm like, you have to. You kind of imagine like this could happen. Um, I'm not writing fantasy, although I like good fantasy, but I like. I've wanted to be a writer since I was 13, and it's because I had a teacher who gave us an assignment where we could make up a story that fit in with the unit she was teaching. And I tried that, and I thought, I really like this. This is fun. And that's sort of what I thought writing would be all about, is you make up everything. Like, I didn't really want to do the write-what-you-know thing. Yeah. Uh, but that... <laughs> to to the point where, like, the first book I tried to write, I was writing about things that I knew absolutely nothing about, and this is before the Internet was widely available. And so I was just really making things up out of my head that didn't that it just didn't work. But that was okay. It was a glorious failure, and I learned what I could do and what I couldn't do, and I learned from it. Um, but, yeah, you, you try to come up with, you try to come up with stories that people are going to follow you around and go, okay, I'm going to follow that character. And to the point where people talk about characters like they're real. I love the, I love the 
Marvel Cinematic Universe. My two sons love it, and we watch, we've seen almost all the movies, and, you know, we talk about Captain America and Thor and Iron Man and Black Widow and, you know, Hawkeye and all, and the Hulk, like they were real. And we do it with Hamlet and other Shakespeare characters because they make an impact on us, and the writers did a good job of, you know, Sell them to us. I'm not trying to say like the Hulk and Hamlet are really like related or equal. <laughs> I, Captain America. Well, they're not. Captain America, <laughs> maybe. I, I arm wrestle with you on that, but no, I'm just. That's kind of what we do, and sure, we doubt ourselves as writers because we're. All of this is like. Does this make any sense? And again, if you're writing a nonfiction book, yeah, you can always. You might be having to try to make sense out of a very, uh, incredibly confusing situation. But hopefully you've got documented proof and evidence and records of things that did happen. And so your task is to bring that to life, but there is that there. Fiction is that, that base to draw on. In fiction writing, our base is this chaotic cloud of ideas in our head. Um, I feel like I just diagnosed myself with something. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We've got the members of the medical coming right now. I'm married to a psychologist, so it's all good. <laughs> well, there, there you go. I just, I just have to wonder about when you do that. Uh, is it the character or the situation that's the important part of the story? Then it's primarily the character because there's only so many plots. There's only only so many types of stories in the world. But every, you know, I look at I teach high school students. I've taught. You know, at this point, I've probably taught uh, a couple thousand. And they all go through the same basic, you know, ninth through 12th grade kind of thing. And we're familiar with story arcs and movies um, and in real life, too. But every single individual human being is an individual and no one like that person, exactly like that person has existed before. And it can be like that in, in fiction. So I like situations and stories. Like I said earlier, I like stories where things happen, and usually there's some kind of suspense and some kind of uh, thriller aspect. But those are the types of stories I enjoy, and, and anything with mystery at all. But if, it, if the characters aren't compelling, then, you know, that's not it, – that's what, that's what, to me, tends to draw you into the story, make you want to follow them around and see them go through the, the mechanics of the plot and see if they're going to – how are they going to defeat the bad guy, or are they? Are they going to get the girl or find the magic feather or whatever it is they got to do? But it's the, it's the characters in the end. Um, that's that's what to me makes makes good fiction and makes good compelling writing. Do you think uh, teaching teaching English has affected or uh, changed how you approach writing? Um, yeah, I think that I've come to appreciate more the the power of writing. I've I've had students who uh, write beautifully, write you know. Uh, Certainly better than I did. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Air age, maybe even better than I do now. Um, but I, I mean, I, I said I wanted to write since I was 13. And once I figured, I was like, I want to write books. But even then I realized, what do... What do writers do? Like, I, even then, I had an idea that people didn't write a book and go, well, that's it for this year. Now I'm going to go hang out at the beach until, you know, maybe next year <laughs> I'll write another, another bestseller or whatever. And I've written a lot of them are teachers. And I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll go teach and write books. My, that was my career path from 13 till now. <laughs> I, didn't, I thought I'll probably teach English because that made sense. You know, maybe history, but probably English. And, you know, that was, my idea was I was going to teach English and I was, how I was going to pay rent while I wrote the great American novel or whatever. And what I did was stumble into a career that I love and that I've, I discovered I have, I have some talent for, and, but not so much that I think, oh, okay, I know everything. Uh, and so that was that's been wonderful. I think teaching English has made me appreciate um, the power of words even more, and I get to teach poetry and plays and novels, and I get to teach them the students in a way like, how do you think this has happened? Because I think a lot of them, and we do this as English teachers, we're terrible about overanalyzing or <laughs> simplifying stuff. Like, Three trees must be the Trinity, or could you know? <laughs> Actually, it's four trees, and no, um, we. You know, I don't think that you know Fitzgerald sat down to write the great the, to write the Great Gatsby and said, "I'm now going to write a story about the American dream in which a green light at the end of the dock symbolizes said dream and how it is you know remote and yet we're always trying to reach and grasp it." No, I think that he had an idea of the kind of story he wanted to write, and he wrote a scene. It's like, why is that green light? What is that? What is that there for? That seems, huh? Let me mess with that. And then that ended up becoming, oh, that's the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. And Gatsby's always trying to reach back to the past. And I don't think most writers, even the great ones, come up with that, like, in their heads before they sit down and put pen to paper or fingers in a keyboard. Uh, they, they kind of, they muddle along and figure it out. And it's been fun to teach literature that way. You know, you look at Shakespeare, we treat Shakespeare like a demigod in English classrooms. And I keep reminding my students, I'm like, this was a play. This dude was like Spielberg. He wanted you to come, he wanted to put people in seats and pay to watch his show. And if it wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't writing so 400 years later, students would be reading his works. I think he'd be you know, he'd probably be pretty happy that we were, but that wasn't, he, he wanted to be a playwright and he wanted people to come see his shows.
you know, as opposed to being some kind of work that we just revere and just put under like a sort of a, a, a crystal bowl and keep preserved and must stay this way forever. Is there an underlying text? Do you have some sort of meaning? Um, you know, like when you when you look at the story, if you break it down some, and you've got like an uncle here that's been distance, mm-hmm. doesn't even know his niece, so to speak, but she comes to him. Is this sort of a story? Is, is there like something about family and connection and that people will stick together? Like is there some underlying theme here? I think yes, but it's not. Initially, it wasn't sort of conscious. Again, it wasn't like, I'm now going to write a story about family in which X happens. Um, my wife, Kathy, pointed out, she said, what is it with you and uncles? You have uncles in all of your books. <laughs> and uh, she's <laughs> right. And um, and I don't know. There was something about, I've got, I've, I've, I have some interesting uncles, but um, it's more about, that's family, but kind of at a slight remove. Like it's a, it's not really a parental figure, but it's not like your adult neighbor who's friends with your parents who's sort of looking out for you or something. It's someone who's like your dad but is not your dad mm. or your mom. Um, and I think that in most stories, most people like – a redemption story. Uh, now I'm in the South, so I've said that when I said redemption story, you know, I've had I've had some readers thinking, you know, do you mean like, do you mean like born again? Like I'm like, no, I don't mean that. Someone, I mean somebody who's it can happen that way, but I'm talking about somebody who's done something wrong, made a mistake, because everybody does, and then they're trying to make up for it some way, and maybe they can't fully. But, you know, we like that. We like underdog stories and like stories where people are trying to, you know, they did something in their past, or they're trying to get away from something in their past. But uh, William Faulkner said, you know, the the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. Uh, And that's, you know, those words are pretty true. You know, we we carry our past around with us to drag a long shadow. Uh, And sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, whatever it is in the past, but sometimes it's not so good. And I tend in my fiction to focus on characters whose pasts are mm, not so good uh, for various reasons or other. And so I'm trying to kind of deal with that. That's the kind of story I like, and it usually involves family one way or the other, uh, or close friends, like a kind of family of, you make of your own. I'm wondering after, uh, you know, writing, especially like dark scenes, scenes of death and stuff, do you, do you have a way to decompress, or do you need? Do you even need to decompress? Can you, you know, just move on to the next story? Um, I think. Well, it depends on what you're writing. Like I've I've read books. Well, and it depends on the kind of scenes you're writing. And if uh, I mentioned Marvel movies earlier, you can go watch mm-hmm. a, certain Marvel movies, and there might be a there might be a fairly high body count, although they they don't tend to be rated R, so it's not like gory or anything, but. You know, I've never really felt like, okay, now I walk out of a Marvel movie and I'm like, man, like I want to, my kids want to talk about it, but I'm not like, I got to go, you know, I got to go read some Jane Austen or something. Like I, <laughs> right? Um, or just curl up in a fetal position and, and weep. <laughs> uh, I have read, I have read uh, harrowing books where I've closed and just sort of like, okay, that, that gutted me. Um <laughs> I'm thinking of something like A Little Life, which came out a, a couple years ago. Um, that was a, a brilliant, brilliant story about these very, especially this one very damaged and abused character and just the repercussions on him and his, you know, family and friends, this close circle of friends. Most of what I write, my, my books don't tend to be, you know, really dark. So, mm-hmm. Some are darker than others. They might be gritty, and there will be violence. Um, Karen Slaughter is a Atlanta area writer who writes, mm. you know, really great thrillers, and um, she writes some pretty dark stuff. And she's like, 
I haven't met her in person, but I've seen interviews and, and know people who know her well. And she's this, like, delightful, friendly, quirky woman. You know, she's not... Uh, She's not this dark, twisted soul that is like pouring out her, you know, her damaged self onto the paper. She's this nice, nice lady who's like, I'm going to write stories where these awful things happen. And then they're going to sell really well, um, which they do. Hmm. I mean, yeah, and was, like Stephen King had this great quote. And he's like, people think I'm really weird or, or strange. And he says, I tell them I have the heart of a little boy and I keep it in a jar on my desk. And I love that because you read the first part, you're like, oh, he's like a little, oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I can hear him laughing when he, when, you know, I, I imagine him writing that and then laughing and thinking, okay, that's good. They're going to like that. Um, I'm not, I don't really need to, de- I, I haven't written anything yet where I have, uh, where I've gone into some sort of really dark place. I've had, uh, I do have characters who are wrestling with, darkness in their own lives and I have to kind of imagine or empathize with them to the extent okay what would it be like to be in that situation Hmm. but my life is so busy that uh, I'm not complaining I mean I've got a full life married and kids and and a career that I'm always okay that's I can put that away and now I've got to go do something else right now even if it's just yeah, I'm going to play solitaire on my phone for a little bit, or I'm going to go, I need to go teach or whatever. Um, so we'll see. It depends. I, I could see writing something where, yeah, I've got characters who are doing things that that's that's going to require me to go, you know, get a facial. Or, <laughs> yeah, he's going to be for a week or whatever. Yeah, he teaches. He teaches high school. He's got to decompress from that. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I have, again, I got. I'm at a good school, and I've got. Uh, you know, I have cousins who teach in public school system in North Carolina, and they've. You know, there's like 35, 40 kids in the class, and my largest class is 19. And that's big. People are like, "Wow, that's it's all relative." Where do you see yourself going with this? Um career of writing do, do it seems like are you kind of got a planned out course for yourself or any ideas people ask me that i remember a robin williams bit where he he said i have you know i have two views i have two visions for my son one is you know i would like to thank the academy uh and the other one is you want fries with that that's <laughs> that's sort of you know that's that, that's sort of how I react to that. Look, I, this is something I've wanted to do since I was, you know, a, barely a teenager. And I'm not saying that since from 13 until now, I consistently, you know, drove myself to do this. Um, but it was always a dream in the back of my head. And it came true with my first book, you know, four years ago now. And it's still coming true and I'm still kind of knocked out by that. And I hope that I don't lose that or ever think, or ever get to a point where, okay, now I got to write another book or, you know, someone's like, would you mind signing my book? You know, I never want to be one of these people like, you know, how much will you pay me to come to the, yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I mean, I think artists should get paid for their work and their time. Definitely, but uh, I'm just, I want to keep running. I want to get better. Um, I don't, I don't want to necessarily just get pigeonholed for just writing one kind of book. I want to make sure, I like, I want to, this idea of writing books that you could look at as thrillers, but you could also look at them as, you know, as vague a term as literary fiction is, something, a combination of the two, I, I would love that. And I, that's sort of what I aspire to. We've all, we've all read books where like, okay, this was good, but how did, you know, why was this book the book of the year? And there are a lot of times you read and go, okay, that definitely, that's amazing. 
that definitely should win all the awards, and I see, and they ought to make movies, and this writer ought to be set for life for writing for writing this. Um, well, it's nice of you to say that about me. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. No, I, I think, and, and and the cool thing about meeting other writers in this in this gig is that uh, to a person, almost every single one of them has been really kind and generous and supportive because we're all been there. It's not like a zero sum game, like. You know, man, Alan, Alan won this thing. Like he sold this book. You know, why is his book so? You know, people buy more than one book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so if they 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 can buy Alan's book and they can buy my book, and we all win, right? It's the, it's yep. not really, you know. But don't God, buy yeah, God, for, yeah, no. God forbid I ever get to the point where I'm like Stephen King or James Patterson. You know, are, do, who, which, or John Grisham, like, which one of us is going to be number one this week, right? Or that kind of thing. That'd be a, that's a different problem to have. Um, so, you know, I'm good for them. Well, Frank, do you uh, read anything or have any influences that uh, might be surprising to fans? Yeah, I don't really read books. They're not, there's just not, I don't have time. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> for a second, you're like, Oh my God! Really? Is he going to? I just write books. I don't read anybody but myself. Um, I. It's hard during the school year because it's just busy, and when you're when you're reading, you you can't. You're not writing. Um, And I know when I was younger, I didn't I didn't like to read much. I stopped reading while I was trying to actively write, especially when I was younger, because I would sort of without meaning to, I would kind of copy the patterns of the style or the yes. person I was reading, right? Um, that can still happen, but I'm more aware of it now, and I, and I, I think we don't do it. Um, I I read stuff all the time. Martin Cruz Smith was one of my favorite authors, uh, and still is, with this sort of he – write, he writes these great thrillers, but he writes these – they're great books, too, Um he knows character and he knows language. And he just happens to be pretty good at writing suspense thrillers. Um, I, li- I-, I recently discovered uh, you know, S.A. Cosby, who's getting all the accolades and only when he's, he's one of those people like, yes, you should. Um, he's writing you know, rural noir uh, in, lives in Virginia, rural Virginia. Uh, and he's black, and he's writing about he's writing characters who are black in this sort of crime fiction in small small town Virginia. So, which you'd think, okay, that's not. And, and he's even you know he's written about this that that's you know I didn't realize that there were lots of people of color living out here. And he's like, I, yes, actually, <laughs> and uh, and his books are great. And they they they're about they're, they're a whole heck of a lot of fun to read and there's a lot of a lot of thrills and there's violence in them but there's also lots of good commentary by the way on race in America and that sort of thing. Um, you know Brian Panowich, Wally Cash, uh, Jocelyn Jackson, you know, Patty Callahan Henry who who is a, a friend of mine and she doesn't write thrillers but she. Uh, she can write really good characters and uh, pack a powerful emotional punch, whether it's a love story or her, story, her historical fiction. Um, yeah, I, I read. I read everything. I, I just I've heard of him forever. I just discovered James Lee Burke. Mm. Um, yep. and I'm reading one of his first book of his, "The Lost Get Back Boogie," which is. <laughs> I'm like what the mid '80s, and he had been in print, and then he fell out of print, and then tried to sell this book, and like a hundred plus people turned it down, like some ridiculous number of people, like no, and then he got it published, and it was it relaunched his career, kind of thing, Um, and he's fantastic. So, yeah, uh, Pat Conroy too, probably early on, he was a southern writer could write gorgeous lyrical prose 
and he wrote stories where lots of things were happening within a family and things were happening to families, whether it was storms or it was, you know, some secret evil group was trying to do something at a school or, uh, you know, family dynamics. He, he, could, he could pull off all of that. Um, so, yeah, and Stephen King. Because not because I like I, I like horror, but the you know I was I was one of the it was a time when you know time when you like you discovered you're like did you know did you know that then everyone else goes yes yes we've known we've known for a very long time I was kind of I was like did you know this guy he can like actually write mm. <laughs> it's not just like horror like he's a like, yes yes we know he's won all these awards for you know unrightly so. Um, now he's great. He's great at when he's when he's firing on all cylinders. Yeah. You you're in for a late night because you're get one more chapter, and then it's one a.m. and you're like, I have to yep. finish the book now. Do you like writing better now on a computer than the old quill feather pen, pen that you had when you were <laughs> thirteen and started writing? Well, Al, back in the back when I first. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd throw Smith that in. Corona machine thing they've come yeah. up with kids in there. Um, I, you know, I, go, I, I had to go take, my mom made me go take typing lessons. I was 13. A lot happened when I was 13, apparently. Uh, the, next youngest person, the next youngest person in the class was 22, uh, and they were all women. And there were a lot of older women who were going back in the workplace, and then 13-year-old me. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I hate, I'm like, are you kidding? Like, the, the instructor was a woman. So I'm like, seriously? And I wasn't old enough to be, like, checking out any to see if they were, like, attractive. I was like a kid, right? Not that that, would, that sounds creepy, sorry. But, I mean, like, I was just like, oh, my God, surrounded by all of the – like, I couldn't even – I didn't even have the consolation of, like, well, at least she's cute or pretty or – like, I, I, was I was a 13-year-old boy. It's like, that ain't me alone. And I had to type. And so I learned how to type really quickly. So that was a good thing. Thanks, Mom. I always type my stuff out. I know some authors that will check into a hotel for a few weeks, get a hotel room, and they will, you know, and they will write there. Like they'll be away, they'll put the phone up, whatever, and they have no Internet, and they'll just write on paper, and then later on they'll transcribe it. Um, I get that. Uh, my handwriting looks like uh, a, a like an arthritic man trying to write in Mandarin. So I I I, I type, and I've I've always liked uh, that's just always worked for me. Um, I always like using the computers, and I use and I've got you know use software programs so you can move chunks of story around and kind of organize and outline. That helps. I always go to a hotel to do my writing. Do you really? Yeah, quite often. Quite often I do. Like I do a lot of my research and I'm going all over the place and I do all that stuff. And then when it's time for me to put the narration to the story, I have to get away. I, and I like going to a city I've never been to before and get a hotel downtown and uh, be surrounded by a million people I don't know. Yeah. Isolation's great. Yes, it can be. Isolation, but also, I mean, everyone has the idea of, you know, being in the mountain cabin, like, away from everybody or, you know, on the island and no one can bother you. That does sound nice for vacation, but, you know, if you, want step, you want to step out and go get a, you know, a six-pack or a nice bottle of wine or, a, you know, go eat a decent dinner um, or see people, you know, even. Yeah. I tell my fiction writing students, I teach a, a creative writing class in high school, and I'm like, you know, listen – like, don't be creepy. Don't, like, go surreptitiously record people talking. But if you're, if you're in the cafeteria, <laughs> like, listen to people talk. And every once in a while, someone will say something that you're like, I, wait, what? You know, what did they just say? And some of it's shocking necessarily, although you might hear that, but you'll hear like, really strange terms of phrase or really funny, you know, you know, people will do things all like, well, that's how the cookie bounces. I'm like, that's not that's not the saying. But, you know, <laughs> it's usually a dad or it's somebody not. will say that. And then and you're like, that's how the 
And that's kind of that's a silly example, but you'll hear people say things like that and go, I'm going to file that away, and then it'll come up in a story later. Yeah. You haven't had Dave's cookies. They do bounce. <laughs> 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 well, so um, how do people come find you, hunt you down and track you down? Like what is there? Uh, you have a website, phone number? What, what do you like to give out? Yeah, ChristopherSwan.com, Swan with two N's. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at Swanny Author, S-W-A-N-N-Y Author. Um, and you know, I'll tweet, and I'm on Instagram, Christopher underscore Swan. I'm still figuring that out. Uh, I'm not on Snapchat. Uh, my students, my students swore they were going to get me on TikTok and make me famous, and I beat them to it. <laughs> I beat them to it by making a very short promotional video for one of my books, and they were they were sort of gleefully stunned. It was kind of funny. <laughs> uh, it was also yeah. slightly embarrassing, uh, I guess. But uh, but uh, no, it was fun. So yeah, you can find me. You can find me there. Well, great. Oh, we'll have that posted in R so people listening can go one click and find you. And uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. You know, I had a really good idea for you for your next book. I cannot wait. <laughs> no, really. I'm, I'm no, serious. Uh, this, I'm, okay. this, this would be perfect. This is radio show host. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what he's, no, no. he's murdering people wrong. To, okay. Uh, well, that, well, that's true. I, 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 I've kept <laughs> the notes. That's true crime. I've kept the notes. So, you know, after I'm gone, you can have the notes. No, I, I was thinking... Um, you should really be a ceiling painter. <laughs> and you should write a book about how to paint your own ceiling. Have you been looking at my pictures that I've heard? <laughs> uh, oh, I thought that was hilarious. You had the best expression on your face. I didn't even, I, I spent, <laughs> we had to do a renovation in our house. And like any renovate in the bathroom, like any renovation, it went way over budget and over time, and we're sick of it. And we, at the same time, so there's a hole in our ceiling, so it gets patched up. But there's this big, so we're gonna have to get the whole ceiling painted. We're like, oh, and I'm like, oh, I can. It's the summer. I can do that. Well, I'm, I, I physically was capable of doing it, but yeah, by the end, of the, the end of the day, I look. I look like people <laughs> must imagine, like a a a like some a dictator in a foreign country <laughs> hiding in a in a hole and like you know, uh, you know, drinking his own sweat or something <laughs> and, and caught. And this is the mug shot. Yeah. Um, I, I I look I look deranged. And yeah, he did. That's my a perfect. Friends, my, my friends and family were like, "What the hell happened?" It was, uh, and I did, I just was like, "I'm taking a selfie." And I was trying just to look kind of tired, and instead I looked like I wanted to reach through the camera and murder you. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was which like, is yeah. completely not my personality, so that made it even funnier. Yeah, I thought it would be fun. I might feelings. Yeah, that's. That that'll uh, that that'll have to that'll have to be it. Yeah. See, good, call, it. good call, Al. Good good, call. Good. <laughs> Dave, here's what you know. Do I ever have to decompress that? That. <laughs> yeah, he paints the ceiling. Ceiling. <laughs> After I painted the ceiling, I needed to go do something. I need to go do something. <laughs> like you know. Yeah, write a murder story. Right? Write a murder story. Yeah. <laughs> Teach a story. Run into a burning building and save save children or something easy. You know. That, yeah. <laughs> something calming, something relaxing. Always. Well, always interesting to talk to Mr. Christopher Swan. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Al, thank you so much, David. Good seeing, good talking to you. I appreciate it, and I appreciate all your readers out there. And like I said, ChristopherSwan.com. Thanks, Christopher. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.